Good morning. <laughs> My name is Dan. I am one of the elders here at Restoration Church, and um, Pastor Kevin's given me the opportunity this morning to just share a few things with you from um, God's Word. And so I'm happy that you could be here and join us on New Year's Eve. New Year's Eve, there's always a lot of fun things that can happen, a lot of good memories that are made. Um, I remember back, I think one of my most memorable uh, New Year's Eve that I had was, well, I guess it's easy to figure out, it was on the millennium, so it would have been 17, almost 18 years ago, I guess. And I was uh, working at the time as a youth pastor in Northern California, and we took our kids every summer to a summer camp down there called Hume Lake. And for the millennium, um, New Year's Eve in 1999, they were going to do this big party down at Biola University. Um, I, was, I was up in Sacramento, and they were down, so they were doing their big party down at Biola University in L.A. They were going to have like four or five bands there. It was going to be like a five, six-hour long thing with all these games and, you know, tons and tons of pizza and all this great stuff. It sounded like a lot of fun. One of my favorite bands at the time was the, the like, headlining band that was going to be playing at midnight. Um, and so I knew I'd have a blast. And when you're a youth pastor, a lot of times that's like the main thing you do to decide if you want to do something. If you think it's going to be fun, then the kids have to think it's going to be fun. So I, I wanted to go. I knew the kids in our youth group would have a great time. So I ran the idea past my pastor. And he was like, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. There's just one problem. You've got to convince the parents of these kids to let them take their kids down to L.A. on New Year's Eve 1999. Now, if you were alive then, I know most of the kids in the room, you weren't. But if you were alive 1999, you remember all the big hysteria. You know, Y2K, the world's going to shut down. Every computer's going to die. Planes are going to crash. You know, who knows what will happen. The banks will all, you can't get money. You'll, you won't be able to do anything. And, and there were a lot of people that were buying into this hype. And people, you know... Your doomsday preppers were buying all their stuff and storing it in their caves, whatever they needed to do. So, I, and I had some parents that were sincerely freaked out by the whole Y2K thing. So I remember about three months, this would have been September, October, before it happened, we had to have this big parents meeting. I remember standing up in front of the church, presenting the idea to all the parents, telling them all the safeguards we're going to take. You know, we're going to get all our money out before, you know, midnight. We'll gas up the bus so we can get back here at the very least. You know, we'll be on campus at Biola, so if there are massive riots that break out, we can just hunker down in the gym. We've got all our bases covered. And most of the parents were like, yeah, okay, I think you can handle it. We'll be okay. But I, I sincerely had probably, I think, two or three families who were like, no, we're not letting our kids go down and spend Y2K in, in Los Angeles, and they, they kept their kids home. Um, you know, the rest of us went, we had a blast. If you remember, Y2K came and went, and, you know, most of us don't even remember, other than that we had a, a fun time at whatever party we were at that night, because there was um, no big deal at all. And, but that's what New Year's is. A lot of times it's a time to, to get together, hang out with some friends. Hopefully you've got, you know, some kind of gathering or get-together you're going to go to tonight and, and be a part of and have some fun um, doing that. But it, it can also be, you know, as you come to New Year's Eve every year, it's a good time to look back, to, to reflect. You know, think back on maybe what's happened in the last year, um, major accomplishments that have gone on, um, lessons that you've learned. And it's also a time, you know, to look ahead. You know, people make New Year's resolutions and, you know, plans, set goals, things they want to accomplish um, heading into the new year. 
And so with that kind of thing in mind, the idea of, you know, kind of maybe reflecting and reevaluating and, and looking at our lives, um, I got a few questions that I'd like you to think about this morning as we come to the end of 2017 and, and start to head into 2018. Just think about these questions and, and kind of keep them in mind as, as we um, talk this morning a little bit. But what are the things in your life? What's most important to you? What is it in your life that gives you value and meaning? What are the things in your life that give you a sense of joy, a sense of happiness, a sense of accomplishment? What are your dreams for your life? What are the things you're dreaming of? This is what I would love to do. That's, if I can accomplish that, all have arrived, all have succeeded. And then the last question, and this is really the one we're going to dig in today, is what would happen if one day, suddenly, all those things that you just thought about were stripped away and you had nothing? What would happen in your life then? If you have a Bible, you want to take it out, turn to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start there this morning as we look um, Because I I want us to wrestle with that thought this morning. The whole idea of if you woke up tomorrow and found out that you had lost everything, that you had lost it all, would Jesus Christ be enough for you? If you woke up tomorrow and Jesus was all you had, all you could do was hold on to God, would that be enough Let's pray. Father God, this morning, as we look into your word and we we think about what for some of us could someday become a reality, that we might lose the things that are most important to us. At some point in time, all of us are going to deal with this at one level or another. Lord, I pray that we would truly see this morning that you are enough. You are all sufficient. You are all that we need. I pray that your truth would be communicated to people's hearts, that your spirit would work in our hearts and our lives, and that as we come to the end of this this morning, whatever we are maybe holding on to and seeing as, maybe not even consciously, but in reality, it's something that we maybe have put above you, that God, this morning, we might come to the point of being ready to let that go. Pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning, I just, only because I just, I feel the need to give um, credit where credit is due. Um, some of my ideas this morning that I'm sharing and kind of the inspiration for where I'm going with this sermon came from this book. This is a book called Me, Myself, and Bob by a guy named Phil Vischer. Uh, how many of you ever heard of Veggie Tales? This might be a little dated. A few of you, okay. Phil Vischer is the guy who created Veggie Tales. Veggie Tales was this series that was out a few years ago. Well, a number of years ago now, I guess. It's been a while. I'm dating myself. Um, but he was the creator of that, and they told you know, Bible stories and, and taught biblical truths with talking vegetables, um, hence veggie tales. Um, and, he, and he created it, and in the course of building the business and, and it, it being bought by other companies, he actually ended up losing his company and, and going through bankruptcy. And it's a book about his seeing his dream come to reality and then losing it all and seeing his dream die 
and the things that God taught him through that. And I've seen a lot of parallels and things that I can relate to in my own life. So I just wanted to give some, some credit there for some of the, the, the thoughts that I'm going to be sharing um, this morning. But Col- Colossians chapter 3 is, is what I want to talk about just briefly as we jump into this uh, this morning. And we're jumping into the middle of a book, and that's always kind of a dangerous thing to do when you're reading the Bible, because the Bible wasn't just written as just these little individual verses, and sometimes we can fall into that trap of taking something and pulling it out of context. So I just want to give you a little background of what's going on as we jump into the, the book of Colossians. Colossians is one of the letters that the Apostle Paul wrote to different churches um, throughout mainly Asia Minor. And the, the letter of Colossians, Paul is writing to a group of believers in Colossae, a church there where he had never met the majority of the people that were part of that church. The church in Colossae was actually planted by a guy named Epaphras. Epaphras had been a disciple of Paul when Paul was in um, Ephesus. Paul spent a couple years in Ephesus. He planted a church there, and he taught there for about two years. One of the men in the church at Ephesus was Epaphras. And after teaching and learning and being discipled by Paul, Epaphras went to Colossae and planted a church there. And so uh, and eventually in Colossae, there were these false teachers that came in. And the false teachers began to spread um, you know, all, the, all these false teachings and began to try and undermine the, the teaching and the ministry that Epaphras had been doing. And so Epaphras, not really being sure of what to do, not feeling like he had the authority on his own or the knowledge even to refute the false teachers, false teachers, he left Colossae and he went to where Paul was. At this time, Paul was actually in Rome, in a Roman prison, um, waiting for his you know, trial to be heard before Caesar. And so Epaphras goes, he sees Paul in prison in Rome, explains to Paul the situation. This is what's going on. This is what I'm dealing with. This is what the false teachers are teaching. And so in response to what Epaphras says, Paul writes the letter of Colossians. And so, and, and, and then the, the letter is carried back to Colossae and is read to the church there. So by the time we get to chapter 3 in the book of Colossians, Paul spent... Um, the first two chapters of the book, refuting the false teachers that, that, that um, Epaphras had been dealing with them. And, and so what we see at the beginning of chapter 3 is Paul is beginning to draw a conclusion. From all the groundwork he's laid in the first couple chapters, he's drawing a conclusion from all that he said. So look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And I'm just going to stop right there. We're just going to look at the first couple verses of that. And he begins those verses by saying, if, if this is true. And what Paul is really saying, it's not an if, it's not like it might be true, it might not, if it is. But the the word that Paul's using there for if is if this is true and we know that it is. In some translations, it's even translated as the word sense. Paul's saying, because all these things that I've said in chapters 1 and 2, because all of this is true, here is what you should do. Since this is true, and Paul has just spent those first two chapters in the book of Colossians telling the believers in Colossae, refuting the false teachers by telling them that Jesus Christ is supreme. He is the one who is over all. That it is through Christ 
and Christ alone that we have been reconciled with God. And he says that it's because of Jesus Christ and it's through Christ and only Christ that we can come to God. And so there's nothing that needs to be added to the gospel. The false teachers were telling the people in Colossae, you know, yeah, the gospel's okay, but there's more to it. There's more that you need to do. There's more than just Jesus Christ. And Paul's saying, no, Jesus Christ is all that you need. Jesus Christ is supreme. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And so Paul says, because that is true, because Jesus Christ is all that we need, then you need to seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated at the right hand above. When Paul says, seek the things that are above, he's saying, those things need to become your focus. You need to strive after them. It's like, you know, imagine if you've lost something or you've misplaced something. You make that your focus to find it. You seek after it. It is the primary thing that, that, that you are after. You're serious about looking for that, and you're not going to let anything else distract you until you find that one thing. It reminds me of a time, um, this was, I guess, about four and a half, five years ago when we moved back here to Yakima. And you know how it is when you make a move. We'd move from Portland to Yakima. And when you make a move, you're moving into a new place. You know, all your stuff is everywhere in boxes. And some of the boxes get labeled. Um, If you've moved a few times like we have, some of them have been labeled four or five times. So they might say bedroom, bathroom, all on the same box. So you really, you know, it's kind of a game. You don't know what you're going to get when you open the box. Well, we moved into our new place, I think probably mid-February when we got here to Portland. And my youngest daughter, Emma, her birthday is at the beginning of March. And in our family, we, when our kids were younger, as they've got older and life's got more busy, this tradition's kind of... We, we forgot about it. We need to get back to that, guys. But we had this tradition where there was this, a, a birthday song that we would play. And it was, it's not, you know, happy birthday, but it's actually, this is a little convoluted. But the Beatles, back in the 60s, did a song called, you know, Today It's Your Birthday, da 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 Yeah, that whole thing. Well, we didn't have the Beatles version. We had a version of that song that was done by one of the members of a band called DC Talk that he sang. So that was the version we played. That was our family tradition. Every year for somebody's birthday, we would play the CD of that song until a few years later when we got the Beatles rock band, and then we'd actually play it all on all the rock band instruments. But we weren't going to get the whole rock band thing out for Emma's birthday. I just wanted to find that disc. That was my goal. We, her birthday was coming up, and we had to play that song for her birthday, because that was just like, that was what we did. And so that was my focus. I set my mind on we have to find that CD. We have to figure out where it is. And I I don't remember how many boxes I opened. I wasn't unpacking them. I was just digging through them to find out where the CDs were. And it's just you dig through box after box after box. And nothing was going to distract me until I found the CD so we could play that song for Emma's birthday. But that's the idea that Paul is talking about here. When you're serious about looking for something. You are focused on it. You set your mind on it. You seek after it. And then he he goes on, and that's what he says in verse 2. He reinforces that thought. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on the things of earth. That's what you need to focus your attention on. We need to focus our attention on Christ, on where he is. I mean, it echoes what Jesus Christ himself said. 
In Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, Jesus Christ said, For us, our attention, we need to focus on the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and then all these things will be added unto you. As followers of Jesus Christ, that's where our mindset, our attention should be focused, is on Christ and on following Him and on where He is. And the reason for that is is because Jesus Christ in our lives is all that we need. I mean, that's where we begin with salvation. When you come to Christ in the Beatitudes, when Jesus in Matthew chapter 5, one of my favorite verses in the Bible, the Beatitudes begin with, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. That idea of being poor in spirit is realizing if we are going to have a relationship with God, we can't get there on our own. We have to realize, I am spiritually poor. I'm bankrupt. I have nothing to offer. It is only through Jesus Christ that we can come to God. And to have that relationship with God, it begins with Christ because Christ is all we need through Him and His sacrifice on the cross as He gave His life for us. That is all we need. That is where our walk with Christ begins being a follower of Him. And it never stops continually throughout our life, our walk with Christ. It's daily remembering and knowing and realizing that Jesus Christ is all we need as we follow Him, as we serve Him, and as we walk with Him. So as followers of Christ, that has to be our focus. But how often do we get reminded of that during the day, during the week? That's not a common message to hear. You know, what season did we just come through? We just came through the Christmas season. And yeah, in church, we we hear about the real meaning of Christmas. But outside of church, if if all you knew, if you never heard the, the true Christmas story about Jesus Christ, what would you think Christmas is about? Stuff. How much stuff can I get? Because every commercial, every message you hear, everything you see is about you need to get this new car and then you'll be happy or this new brand of perfume and aren't perfume commercials the weirdest commercials on TV? I mean, my family, this, this whole Christmas season, first two seconds of commercials on, oh, that's a perfume commercial because I have no idea what's going on. But, you know, uh, but you need all this new stuff, the new toy, the new gadget, the new iPhone 10, you know, a new, com- whatever. But if you get this stuff, that's what you really need. That's what yeah, that Christmas season, that materialism has become about. You just need more, more, more. That's what the world tells us. To really be truly happy and content and, and satisfied. If I get, you know, this new thing. Or maybe it's not a thing. You know, maybe it's a new position at work. Maybe it's, you know, so much money. If I, if I achieve this level of you know, financial wellness, then I'll be really happy or, or, or content. Or if I get, you know, this power, that's what I really need to be happy, to be content, to be fulfilled. You know, and we get these messages all the time. If I just get this one thing, blank, whatever it is, fill in the blank for yourself, then I'll be truly satisfied, content, um, happy, fulfilled, feel successful, feel respected. I'll have reached my goal. I'll finally have accomplished my dream. 
You know, and there, there's a lot of different things that you can put in there that you say, if I just get X, then I'll feel like I've arrived. Then I'll feel like I'm successful. Then I'll feel like I can finally relax and stop trying so hard. But the truth of the matter is that apart from God, anything that you put in there is going to eventually leave you feeling hollow and empty. Because ultimately, there's only one thing that will ever bring you true fulfillment and can truly satisfy us, and that's a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The author C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, He who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. Think about that. He who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. Think about that. I mean, think about who God is, first of all, because for that to make sense, we have to understand who God is. God is infinite. He is all-powerful. He is sovereign. He's in control. He is holy. He is love. There is nothing that we can add to God. He is perfect. So nothing added to God can meet our needs any more than God alone. And for that to be true, that has to cover everything in our lives. He who has anything at all, whatever you put in that blank, if I just had this, if you have that, you don't have anything more than somebody who has just God and God alone and is clinging to Him. You know, and, and, and sometimes it's easy to say that if you just think about it in a material possession kind of way. You know, he who has God plus a car or plus a house or, you know, plus a nice Xbox or, you know, a good job has nothing more than he who has God alone. But stop and think about it in terms of maybe the things that are the most important to you in your life. Put your health in there. Your spouse your reputation. You know, if you're here and you're a parent, put your kid in there. You know, how many of us could do that? He who has God plus loving, healthy kids has nothing more than he who has God alone. What if, for some reason, tragically, your kids were taken away, were gone? Would God still be enough? There's a biblical example of somebody who actually had to face that choice in the Bible. Back in the book of Genesis, there's a guy by the name of Abraham. And Abraham was an older guy. You know, he he was pushing 100 years old when God made him a promise. God promised Abraham at 100 years old, getting close to 100, he didn't have a kid yet. He and his wife were both way up there in years. No children But one day, God makes Abraham a promise. And in Genesis chapter 15, God promised Abraham that he would give him a son. And God said to Abraham, 
Not only am I going to give you a son, I'm going to make you a great nation. Through this son that I'm going to give you, there's going to be a nation and ultimately your descendants are going to outnumber the sands of the seashore. And Abraham had to wait a little while for that promise to be fulfilled, but a few chapters later in chapter 21, Abraham's wife, Sarah, gives birth to a son, Isaac. And Abraham has the son. The promise has been fulfilled. You've got to imagine that Abraham and Sarah are ecstatic. They are so happy. This son that they've waited a hundred years for now is finally here. And they have him. And after, you know, probably 10, 12, 13 years, somewhere in there, because we know it was old enough because Isaac goes with him on this journey that Abraham's about to take, God comes back to Abraham in Genesis chapter 22. And God asks Abraham to do something that is almost unthinkable. God asks Abraham to sacrifice his son. Now put yourself in Abraham's shoes. I mean, if, if you're like me, you'd want to start, you know, bargaining with God or, or making excuses or coming up with alternate explanations. I mean, it'd be like, God, come on. You, you can't really mean that, can you? You don't want me to, to, to sacrifice this son that you gave me? Or, wait, okay, God, maybe I just misunderstood you. You didn't, did you, you know, say something different and I just thought I heard sacrifice him? Or, you know, maybe it wasn't really you telling me that, God. Maybe I'm just having a bad dream because that pizza I ate last night and I need to do something else. You, you, but come on, God, you can't really be asking me to give up my dream, to give up on this son that you promised me. But that was not Abraham's response. Abraham trusted God. Listen to what happens in Genesis chapter 22. After God's telling Abraham to sacrifice his son. Genesis chapter two, chapter 22, um, beginning in verse 19. No, that's not the right verses. Sorry, verse 9. There we go. And then they came to the place. Genesis 22, verse 9. And then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him up on the altar on top of the wood. And then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And God said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For, at, for now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his thorns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So Abraham trusted God even when he was asked to give up his son. He was willing and God provided. Abraham said, I'm willing to let go of everything. 
There's nothing in my life that I'm going to hold on to over you, God. I'm willing to let go of it all and willing to give up that one thing that was most important to him before he was willing to let go of God. So go back to that C.S. Lewis quote. He who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. So think about, remember those questions we started with at the beginning this morning? What are the things you are answering those questions with? What's most important to you? What gives value and meaning to your life? What are the things that give you a sense of joy and happiness, happiness and accomplishment? What are your dreams for your life? Can you really say, you know, he who has God plus those things has nothing more than he who has God alone? Or are you thinking, those things, yeah, but i, I got to have some of these things for myself. Let, let me share an example of just... I guess how God's kind of been teaching me this in my own life, the reality of it. Um, When I was 18, when I was a freshman in college, God very clearly um, gave me a dream, um, a vision for my life when he called me to to follow him and to serve him in in, in full-time ministry. And so from the age of 18 for the next 20 years, um, I followed God in pursuing schooling and serving in churches and and working in ministry. as a youth pastor working with teens. And during my last few years as a youth pastor, I had the opportunity at the church that we were working at in California to to start a a service that was specifically targeted at at reaching basically, you know, um, young adults, teens, um, college age people. And and I was the the, the lead pastor for that service. and, And it was, you know, still to this day, one of the most fulfilling things that I've had the opportunity to do um, in ministry. Um, just, just really loved it. And I, I wanted to find a way to continue to do that and maybe even, you know, do it, you know. I, I went and I talked to my pastor because I wanted to see if there was a way that I could kind of transition out from doing just working with youth and, and, and see this service and kind of build it and, and have it grow in, in some way. And as, as we talked through that idea and talked through what that might look like um, in, in the church that we were at, um, it went from a conversation just between me and the pastor to actually we started talking about it between myself and the board. And we, we ran through all these different scenarios of ways that we thought we might be able to make it work. And, but finally, we had to come to the conclusion that the, the elders, they spent a lot of time praying about it. And they just said, you know, Dan, we really believe with you that this is what God's calling you to do. We just don't think that it's, it's here. We think if you stayed here and tried to do it here at our church, we'd be holding you back from what God, God's calling you to do. So that began the process of Malia and I, you know, beginning a search and trying to look for, well, where is that next place that God might be calling us to, to go and to continue on following this dream? And, um, you know, eventually we ended up leaving that church. We came back. We um, lived with her parents in Yakima for a while as we went through that search process. And after we'd been in that search process for a few months, Um, I connected with a church in San Diego. And this was a a church in San Diego that had a vision. It was was a church of about 5,000. And their their dream, what they wanted to do is they wanted, they were building a brand new facility. And in this brand new facility, they were going to launch a service for their college young adult age group. And it it seemed like, you know, the the, the perfect fit. Um, It was exactly what I'd done. 
at the church we're at in Northern California, just on a, a lot larger scale and with a lot more resources. And I was like, this, this is the dream. This is exactly why we left our, our, our church in Rockland. This is what we were called to do. This is it. And so after about a six-month process of phone calls and interviews and questionnaires and all of that, they, they narrowed their search down to two candidates, myself and one other guy. And they flew each of us down on consecutive weekends to go down to do a face-to-face interview, to meet with key staff people, meet with the lead pastor, you know, take a tour of the facilities, do, do the whole nine yards. And Malia and I were convinced. We're like, we're, we are moving to San Diego. This is where we're going to be because this, this is it, God. This is what you called us for. And so that's what we thought we were going to be. Um, that looked like the, the, the position we were, we were headed for. And about two weeks after we got back um, from San Diego, we received a phone call from Greg, who was the point person that we'd been talking to at the church. And um, he told us he was, he was crushed. He was really disappointed, but they had decided to go um, with the other guy. And I mean, it, was like, it was like a punch in the gut for us. It was just the wind just kind of sucked out of the room. And it was like... God, why? Why would you take us right to the edge of seeing that dream fulfilled and then have it taken away? And, and I'll be honest, for a couple weeks, it was a really, maybe longer than that, it was a really dark time in our lives. It was a, a, a time of, you know, really questioning God and, you know, kind of just not sure of what the next step was. Eventually, just because life has to go on, and sometimes you just have to push through those kind of disappointments. We picked the search process back up. Um, eventually, we ended up at a, at a small church in Portland, which, you know, honestly, when we left California, we would have never in a hundred years imagined we would have ended up in a small little church like this. It was a small church that, you know, had a handful of people in the church who had a desire to see that church transition from being an ingrown church to a church that could really reach out and, and impact um, their neighborhood with the gospel. And so we went there, and I was a pastor there for six years. And it was, that, that whole six years, I was always 100% bought in. God is going to do something great here. We are going to see God break through in some amazing way, and, and this church is just going to do awesome. But that didn't happen. You know, we saw God do some great things in some people's lives, you know, but at the end, after six years, we had to sit down and have a meeting with the board of elders, and the elders and I had to decide that it was time to close the doors of the church because just financially, it was just no longer viable as a church. And it was another punch in the gut. It was another time of just, God, why? Why are you doing this to us? You know, and, and you can look back and we can see things that God's done now and how he's used that um, ministry to lay the groundwork for other things that are happening in the area. And I know that he's in control of all of that. But, you know, it's still tough. There's still another dream that died. And then that, after that church closed, circumstances brought us back to Yakima. I ended up being here in Yakima and being offered a position at another church here in town. And we were like, okay, God, we're going to settle here. We're going to, you know, we'll be at this church for quite a while. And, 
You know, we're going to see our kids graduate from, from high school here. This will be awesome. This, this is cool. This, the things are going to go great. Seven months later, pastor calls me into his office and says, Dan, we just can't afford to keep you on staff here. We're going to have to let you go. It's just like, oh, you know, just crushed again. Third time, third punch in the gut. That was four and a half years ago that that happened. And for the last four and a half years, it's been like slowly watching that dream that God gave me when I was 18 of feeling called into full-time ministry slowly die. And the question I've had to answer again and again and again is if that dream that feeling called to full-time ministry, if that is really dead, and that's not what God's got for me anymore, and there's some other plan that he has somewhere else, is God really enough? And that's what it comes down to for each one of us. Because most of you have probably already gone through different circumstances in your life where you had to wrestle with that. If you haven't, I'm sorry to tell you, you will. Being a follower of Christ does not exempt us from the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the loss of living in a fallen world. That's the reality. There's sin in the world, and that's where the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the loss come from. It's not that God desires those things for us. When God created the world, that was never part of the picture. God created a perfect world. Without pain, without heartache, without tears, without loss, without sickness, without death. But you know what? Adam and Eve sinned. Mankind sinned. You and I have sinned and we live in a fallen, sinful world. And that's where all that junk comes in. And becoming a follower of Christ will never exempt you from that. It's still here. And we're going to have to deal with it. So when we think about that quote, he who has God plus many things has nothing more than he who has God alone. For each one of us, everything, everything in our lives has to go in there. There is nothing that we can add to God. To make us any more fulfilled or happy or content. We need to come to a point in our lives where we find our fulfillment, our happiness, our joy, our contentment in God and in God alone and not in the things of this world, not in money, not in positions, not in power, not in other people, but in God and God alone. Because at any moment in our lives, at any time, any one of those things could be taken away. And if something of that is taken away, all we're left with is God. We're left with that question. Is God truly enough? If God was all you had, would that be enough? Because there's going to be a time in your life where you're going to lose something. 
or someone. Maybe it's a passion that you've had. Maybe it's a dream that you've had. Maybe it's that person. Maybe it's a possession. Maybe it's a position. But there's going to be loss. You know, maybe it's been in your life. Maybe you've walked with other people when they've gone through that. In this last year, um, in our family, we've had to walk through with um, Malia's sister and our brother-in-law as they lost their son, tragically. And we have seen them cling so tightly to God, knowing that that's enough. In the midst of the most heartbreaking loss you can imagine, I've seen it in their lives. God is enough. In the last few years, working for Swans, I've had the opportunity to meet a guy in Ellensburg. He's an Iraq war vet. You know, he, he was a soldier, vibrant, healthy, and he almost lost his life to a roadside bomb in Iraq. And now, Ever since then, every day, he deals with health struggles that I can't imagine. But yet, he is one of the most passionate, joyful, caring, and giving people that I know. His love for Christ grows daily. You know, he's a guy who doesn't have a lot, and he's giving me books and devotionals and encouraging me every time I go see him every couple of weeks. Because he knows that even though he's lost so much, God is enough. And he clings to God every day. So what is it in your life that you long for, that you dream about? Or maybe that you have dreamed about in your past and now you've got it. It's there. It's in your grasp. What is it that you need to put in that blank and say, God, you are enough. And if you ask me to, I'll even give this up for you. I will sacrifice this for you. Listen to this quote. This is from a a pastor by the name of Richard Porter. He said this in, in one of his sermons. He said, if God gives you a dream and the dream comes to life and God shows up in it, and then the dream dies, it may be that God wants to see what's more important to you. The dream or Him. And then once He's seen that, you might get your dream back. Or you may not. And you may have to live the rest of your life without it. But that will be okay. Because you'll have God. Whatever it is in your life that you might be unwilling to give up. Whatever, what is it in your life that you're unwilling to say, God, you're all enough. That's what we need to give up. We need to be willing to say to God, I give it all up for you. Because whatever you're unwilling to give up, whatever you're unwilling to say to God, I am ready to sacrifice that for you if you ask me to, God. You know what that's become in your life? That has become an idol. That has become the one thing in your life that has taken the place of God. Because that's the place, the thing that we should cling to above all else should be God each and every day. 
And it's not that those other things, you know, whether it's kids, spouse, a home, a car, possessions, position, money, none of those things in and of themselves are bad. But they only become a problem when our priorities get out of whack. When we don't have God first and foremost in our lives. When we haven't made our top priority in life to seek God, to seek His kingdom, to seek His righteousness. Like Paul said, to seek the things that are above where Christ is and not the things of earth. So as the worship team comes and we get ready to sing these last couple songs, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond this morning. We've got a couple tables set up up here, and there's just some blank sheets of paper and some pens here on the sides. And if there's something in your life that's competing with God for that top spot, something in your life that maybe God is telling you, you need to be willing to give that up for me. You may not have to give it up, but you need to be willing to. I would encourage you as we sing these last couple songs, come down and write that down. Write it down on your sheet of paper and then just place it here on this table in the middle just as a symbol of saying, God, I'm giving this up. I'm giving this up for you. Because God, you are enough.